You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Megan Brown sits down with Christopher Roberti, Senior Vice President for Cyber Intelligence and Supply Chain Security Policy at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Are cyber public-private partnerships obsolete? What should the private sector look for in the new incident reporting rules from the Department of Homeland Security? Are new Securities and Exchange Commission cyber rules a misguided solution in search of a problem? Will cyber remain bipartisan? Listen to our latest cyber podcast to get up to speed on all things cyber. Well, thanks, Chris, so much for joining us for this episode of the Wiley Connected podcast. Really happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. So I thought uh, for our listeners, we've done a series of pods on various cyber issues. I'm really psyched to have you here to talk about the Chamber's cyber work. You guys have a breadth of exposures to the different cyber issues because of the diversity of Chamber membership. thought it would be helpful to level set for our listeners about kind of the Chamber's role and priorities for cyber over, you know, really the, the past more than a decade. So maybe you want to just describe the Chamber's approach and overall philosophy on cyber policy. Sure. Yeah, I think it's um, it's never boring. I think we could start there. But really, um, what we've done and we've done for well over a decade is we aim to serve as the connective tissue between our members, the American business community and the government and other actors. We do that through a series of meetings. We have very good relationships with people across the government, whether they're in the executive branches and agencies, also in the Congress. And we use the chamber's breadth and depth of both member companies, but also our policy expertise to bring uh, the parties together, government speakers, our, our members, to tackle issues of significant in- interest across the board. So you guys have been a champion for years uh, for collaboration and one of my favorite topics, public-private partnerships. Uh, Can you sort of explain why that's so important and what those look like from your perspective? Because you see so much of the different critical infrastructure sectors. So maybe help folks understand why that's such an important piece of the cyber puzzle. Sure. That's important for a lot of reasons. And first of all is that the private sector is very engaged in owning critical infrastructure. As you mentioned, uh, there's a statistic out there that uh, something like 80 plus percent of all critical infrastructure in the United States is owned and operated by the private sector. So what that means is that private sector entities across the board tend to have very good knowledge, expertise, and visibility into their systems. And, And we're talking today about cybersecurity. The other thing is that Government can't be expected to know everything, and often the the approach that uh, government takes, if it's regulatory in nature or proscriptive, can often uh, not solve the problem that they're intended to solve. They may be well-intentioned and well-meaning, but often, as I said before, with the expertise and the knowledge and the insights of the private sector, often you might see well-intentioned government policies miss the mark a little bit because of that lack of visibility. And secondly, the process of regulatory rulemaking and legislation is necessarily slow. And so an issue that may be a problem 
three years ago, by the time it gets legislated or regulated and rules come out, well, the threat or the instance may have completely shifted. And so that's why we believe in a much more uh, voluntary approach where private sector and public sector come together to tackle the issues. We're not going to always agree, but we are going to work together in good faith to to solve issues that come up. And um, and usually it works out, in our view, uh, for the better taking that approach. Yeah, I mean, I've been pleased to see over the past 10 years, you know, the government's approach, I think, has, you know, just the FBI, for example, really trying over the past, you know, handful of years to make it easier for the private sector, make it less scary, and at least, you know, say the right things about victim companies needing to feel safe working with the government and sharing information. Um, and, I, and I think that most people on both sides of the aisle think that that's a good model. I've seen a few fissures in maybe that consensus about the the importance of public-private partnerships as opposed to regulation. I think we're we're moving a bit more in a regulatory direction, and we can talk about that. But you know, you were on the Hill. Uh, you've been doing this for a while. Cyber has largely been bipartisan uh, historically and recently. Do you see it staying that way as we have this uptick in congressional interest in cyber? Well, I sure hope so, and I, and I'd like to echo what you said about the trend where government seems to be approaching this in a very collaborative fashion. We we see that as well. And I think the FBI you mentioned, the Department of Homeland Security, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, other government agencies, uh, Department of Defense and others, even NSA is coming out and doing a lot of work publicly that they that you would never would have thought them seen them do uh, 10, 15 years ago. So all of those things are good. I think part of it is that cybersecurity policy is maturing. It's in its in in ways second generation. So a lot of people who grew up um, in government or private sector have now flipped and some are in government and some are in the private sector. So people know each other. There's a stable of relationships that have been built over the years that are solid. And that allows um, us and law firms like yours and people who are in this industry and in this this field to be able to cut through the chaff sometimes and, and have conversations and avoid misunderstandings. And so I think those are all positive developments in terms of how or where the Congress is going. It's interesting. We looked at last year or just earlier this year, the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act passed. Uh, that got a lot of steam last year following the solar winds attack and then Colonial Pipeline. If you had asked us at the beginning of 2021 if we thought incident reporting legislation was going to pass, I think you could have probably pulled 10 people and nine would have said no way. It would have been something else, data breach or something. Um, but sometimes you, when you see events, sometimes dictate what's happening. And so we have to be flexible and ready to adapt. I don't know if we'll see a more regulatory approach. We're certainly seeing uh, streaks of this in the in the independent agencies. So there's some FTC rulemaking. Of course, there's the SEC rulemaking, which we could we can talk about. And there, the the cyber incident reporting legislation I just mentioned. On the legislation piece, I was very impressed that there was a lot of engagement with members of both parties with committees across the Senate and across the House. 
one of the key things for us at the chamber was that anything that come out be a bipartisan bill. And that was something that we to told committee uh, chairs when they came to us and were interested in, in selling their bills to us uh, at the highest levels of the chamber. Suzanne Clark said, listen, we, we were going to work with you. We're going to work with your staffs. But what we want to see is something that's bipartisan and we'll get behind it when, when that comes. And that's what we did. So let's jump ahead, you know, to that law, the Critical Infrastructure Incident Reporting Act that was just signed by the president in March. For folks who haven't been tracking it, Chris said there were various legislative proposals over the past couple of years and staff in various committees were interested in this topic. And I think to their credit, they did engage a lot with the private sector kind of behind the scenes. I personally would have loved to have seen maybe some more hearings on this, but you know, it is, it is what it is. And this law came, was signed, and it's sort of its key pieces are a direction to the Department of Homeland Security's CISA to go and make rules for incident reporting for critical infrastructure and then reporting on ransomware payments by critical infrastructure. And that's narrower than some of the earlier proposals. I think it, it, it evolved in a helpful direction over time. I still have some you know, concerns about it because it's a huge undertaking for CISA from a regulatory perspective, they have traditionally not been a major regulator. So I'm curious, you know, we've, we're, we're sort of in this interregnum between passage of the law and DHS kind of rolling out what it's, what it's gonna do to implement the law. But Chris, you know, you guys were active. I think, you, you know, Chamber supported the law. What do you wanna see from DHS kind of going forward as they, they embark on this pretty substantial set of regulations? Well, you identified some key issues and, and you are exactly right. This is a major piece of legislation that is treading into areas that we haven't seen in the past. So mandatory incident reporting for a broad swath of, uh, of US critical infrastructure. So of course there are several areas where we're gonna be looking very closely. First is the definition of what is a substantial cyber incident because that, that really tees off everything. So what is it that, what a, comp that a company has to report? The other thing is going to be real clarity on what's covered critical infrastructure. So to whom does this uh, does this obligation apply? And then third, there is there are provisions in the legislation that direct CISA to work to harmonize this with other regulatory requirements from companies because there are other reporting requirements that members have. And so one of the complaints we hear and, and we believe that uh, the government is listening or hearing us is that many companies are, are many companies are under multiple obligations to report to different agencies often very much substantially similar information and so instead of allowing companies who are in the middle of a, of a critical incident or a major cyber incident to focus on identifying the issue preventing it from spreading and remediating it there's a lot of time and attention that has to go into compliance and filling out checklists and sending them off so 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 one of the big areas is going to be on the regulatory harmonization, and we're gonna be very uh, closely watching that. The other thing, and I think it's a little bit related to it, is that CISA is also obligated to enter into executive agreements with other government agencies to promote sharing of information that comes in via the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act. It does nobody any benefit if information is being all sent to CISA, but then nobody else in the government who has a, 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 a need to know that information can get it. So from our perspective, and I think it's, it's pretty broadly shared across our members, they wanna be able to report once and have the government 
spread it out to whomever needs it. So that's, of course, the ideal. We probably will end up somewhere in between ideal and not ideal, but <laughs> but but the but the uh, the impetus is on CISA and government to deal with this. The other thing that's going to be important is once CISA gets the information and and ingests it, what does it do with it? So in addition to tracking and being able to uh, maybe give early warning to other things what analytics will they be sharing back out to the critical to the people the companies that are reporting because that's where uh, this bill could or, or the the resulting regulations could be powerful is if the information that's actually being collected doesn't just sit in a, in a database somewhere but actually gets pushed out to other to companies so that they can know where they need to protect themselves where threats may be coming from in a in a in a relatively quick way. Which I think is really important and is going to be really hard. I mean, one of my personal frustrations with the way this legislation sort of popped into the, the discussion is information sharing is not a new concept. There was legislation in 2015 that Congress passed that the chamber worked really hard on. Um, and we've used, our clients have used, that sets up a voluntary information sharing program with a whole bunch of protections around it. And I think we were, personally, I think we, maybe Congress should have looked at that and, and figured out what worked, what didn't, before doing this sort of new thing. But now DHS can, I guess, you know, harmonize those things or take some lessons learned. But I think the, the point about sharing information back out, and maybe this is a little detour for you, but how have you perceived the quality, for example, of the information coming out uh, from, you know, the government in light of the Russia-Ukraine situation, right? They've really ratcheted up the advisories that are popping out, tips. I don't know that it's as much actionable intelligence as folks really want, but there has been a concerted effort to push more information out to the private sector. How do you feel about that? Yeah, and that's, again, it's this, you're asking all the right questions. This is something that I, so we're not technical experts, hands-on keyboard people. So what we do is, and our, and our views are based on how we, what we're hearing from our members. And what we are hearing from our members is that the level and speed of information that's being shared via the, the joint alerts or individual alerts that come out from, from in some cases, CISA, in some cases, CISA and FBI, sometimes NSA is on there. And sometimes there's been a few reports that are actually are co-branded or joint sealed with members of the Five Eyes. So the, the, the intelligence consortium that composed, composed of the United States, Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. And for us and for our members, uh, we've heard that they have been actually quite pleased with this. There's another concept or another construct which came out of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Uh, it's now called the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. Originally in law, it was called the Joint Cyber Planning Office. But, but the JCDC is comprised of a number of companies that work directly with CISA and others to in the wake of the Ukraine war, it's, it's essentially become like an information sharing uh, collaborative where people are very closely tied and can quickly act on information. We also understand that there have been a series of briefings at the classified level to certain critical infrastructure operators when the government had specific information about potential threats 
from the Russian intelligence services, the Russian military um, that are related to this. So again, I think it could be, there could be much, um, much more seamless constructs, but I think people have really come together and are working closely. What we would say is don't let this crisis and the battle rhythm that we've developed or are developing go to waste. Right. Keep this up, find ways to institutionalize it and and move forward, because the only way that we're going to be able to really shore up defenses is get to a spot where, in the words of our national cyber director, Chris Inglis, in order to defeat one of us, you have to defeat all of us. And so that's important. You know, there's, there's always room to improve. Yeah, no, let's talk if we can talk real briefly about um, you mentioned the Solarium Commission, and I did want to touch on your views on one of the major ways cyber policy is getting made, right? Sersha, the, the incident reporting law is sort of an aberration, right? Big piece of legislation, bipartisan standalone. That's not the way cyber policy has been made in Congress for the past several years. There's been a lot of reliance on the National Defense Authorization Act or the NDAA, and that's what created that Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Just wanted to briefly get your take on that trend, right? Because the NDAA, for our listeners, we've talked about it before. It's must-pass legislation that funds the Department of Defense. I have seen it. We have seen it. You know, we we track it for our government contracts clients because uh, it sets DOD priorities and funding. But over the past five years, it's gotten larded up with a bunch more cyber stuff that affects the private sector. That's that's pretty far afield from traditional DOD authorities and and appropriations. So I'm sort of curious if you could share your thoughts on the NDAA process. If you if if you want to see changes or kind of overall how the chamber is looking at cyber policy because. The NDA is a lot different of a beast to influence than standalone legislation coming out of a committee of jurisdiction. Right. Yeah. And I think for us, um, in 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 most cases, our preference is to see pieces of legislation go through regular order where you have committee hearings and you have, it's marked up. And that, and as you mentioned, the, the the Cyber Incident Reporting Critical Infrastructure Act did go through that process and end up in a uh, an appropriations omnibus bill. Um, also, the National Cyber Director, even though it was in the NDAA, it did get uh, fairly, it had a pretty solid process by which it, it went through. So in terms of a trend, we wouldn't want to see all cyber policy sort of dumped into must-pass bills, but there is a reality around Washington that sometimes it's really hard to get certain bills passed. For our, on our side, what we'd want to see is is ensure that any legislation, whether it's in a must-pass piece or on its own, really get the, the the input of the private sector, that it go through the committee process, that it really does get the opportunity to be marked up and assessed with a lot of private sector engagement. Because, you know, some of the, some of the uh, provisions from the Solarium Commission uh, ended up, as you mentioned, through the NDAA, into the NDAA. There are others that if we perceive they are negative or not in the private sector's best interest, um, we will we will work to to fight those. And mm -hmm. and often, even though it conceivably could go into a must pass piece of legislation, we've been successful occasionally in if not pulling them out, but also sometimes preventing them from even getting in. So yeah. No, and I think, you know, when it comes to the Solarium Commission recommendations for folks who want to sort of dive into the weeds here, you know, they put out a report, gosh, uh, two years ago now, and several of their, rec I mean, we we commented on 
it's on that report, it had, you know, almost 100 policy proposals that staff went and drafted legislation. My personal view is there wasn't enough private sector input in sort of the, the commission membership. It was a lot of legislators and others, but not really enough from the private sector. But a lot of those proposals have driven some of the discussion here, right? Led to the National Cyber Director, um, the JCDC concept, and there's some others. I mean, um, one of the things they also called for though was, and this will take us to this sort of um, independent agency issue you raised earlier, they had called in the Solarium Commission reporting to look to the securities laws to kind of, to address cyber, right? They wanted to sort of make a Sarbanes-Oxley for cyber. And without getting into the merits of kind of that proposal as it stood at the time, you had mentioned, Chris, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission's NPRM. So maybe we can talk briefly about this um, possible dupli duplication, fragmentation. The SEC's NPRM came out right on the heels of the new incident reporting legislation, I think by a couple of days. Um, and for those who haven't dug in, it proposes uh, several new and I think pretty aggressive and burdensome disclosure requirements on companies. The SEC had had guidance in 2011 and 2018 about public companies disclosing material incidents and, and, and encouraging them to, to sort of do more, be more transparent about uh, senior management and risk management and cyber expertise. It also warned against insider trading, and we can discuss that if you want to. Um, but they dropped this NPRM back in March. The comment deadline uh, for initial comments was May 9th. I've been through the docket, uh, but I'm curious, Chris, for your thoughts, the Chamber's thoughts on sort of this what I think is kind of a left turn or a turn in policy from what Congress just did on a bipartisan basis with the Incident Reporting Act. Megan, I couldn't agree with you more. And the as we looked at it, and, and I'm a I'm a recovering securities and private equity lawyer. So when I when I read it, and oh, I read the guidance back in 2018, and I thought, okay, fine, this makes sense. You're telling people what their obligations are, reiterating it. Uh, for any company that in, uh, is faced with a material incident, they must file an 8K. And when this proposed regulation came out, and frankly, even before that, when Chair Gensler uh, previewed that he was he and his commission were thinking about pushing this this proposed regulation out, again, we we engaged with the staff. We were, we were very a little bit surprised, and we said, well, "What's wrong with the 2018 guidance? Use that." And if people aren't doing what they need to, you have you have enforcement authorities. And so, for our view, in short, this was a solution in search of a problem. And and not only that, it got worse because if you look at the the obligations, there's a four day window after which a company determines that they've suffered a material cyber incident that they that they're obligated to issue an 8K. And Four days could be well within a time period that a company is dealing with a major cyber incident. They could still be vulnerable. And so by doing this and announcing it publicly, you can you're effectively giving the the malicious actors, other malicious actors, opportunity to come in and further victimize the company. And this, as you said, flies in the face of exactly where the, the Congress was going with the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act, which provides for confidential reporting to the government 
with liability protection for companies that are reporting it. So this is this is 180 degrees. The SEC proposed rule in many ways is 180 degrees different. There's no delay or any kind of a, a, a opportunity for companies to work with law enforcement, get things under control, and then issue the 8K. So there's there's really it was it was an unfortunate uh, and we believed misguided rulemaking. Again, this is where good intentions sometimes go awry. And we weren't alone with this. We we had a number of many across our membership. There was very near unanimity on this issue, if not complete unanimity, but also in other government agencies. Frankly, we had some conversations and people were a little surprised and, and in some ways a little concerned with where the SEC was going. And so our comment letter was was pretty, pretty direct. Uh, but I think what's also telling is a member of Congress, Senator Portman, submitted a comment letter that was that was outstanding in my view, which really articulated some of the things I just said, and were very closely uh, aligned with 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 our views. But really, that the SEC has sort of stepped into an area where it's not well suited to be regulating, and that there are other provisions or other uh, opportunities to. To, to handle the same thing. So uh, we can go, we, I'd love to talk more about this if we have time, but we can, we can do it in another podcast, but there's, it's, um, there's a lot there. Yeah. And I think the docket reflects that. I mean, it, there are a lot of comments that were pretty substantial filed and, you know, some people are supportive of the governance requirements. I think you and I could have a whole separate discussion about that, but I think I saw a real consensus in the filed comments across industries, across stakeholders to say, you know, four days is too fast. Uh, public seems inconsistent with what Congress wanted to do. The prior guidance was, you know, seemingly adequate here. And I, I don't know that they've identified a real crisis in terms of what the private sector has has or has not been providing the market about this information. So I commend listeners if you want to dig in. The Chamber's comments are really good. There's a lot of good comments in the docket uh, publicly that'll sort of, you know, give you a sense of what's going on. Um, in the general topic of uh, possible fragmentation and duplication. You want to chat real briefly about the FTC, and then I do want to ask you a question about the role of uh, the states in this in this complicated area. So maybe chat about sort of your high-level view on what the FTC is doing. Sure. And I'll just, one last follow-up on the SEC. It's, you know, if you think, look, we, people shouldn't misunderstand. We are not against disclosure. In fact, I mean, I'm an investor. I own shares through a 401k or through direct you know, brokerage account. So of course I want to know decision relevant information, but I also don't want the companies in which I or my colleagues or friends invest be actually potentially more vulnerable because of a disclosure obligation than less. And so that's that's really how I, we look at that one. Um, I mean, if I, before we jump, because I think yeah. you made a really good point there, I think folks will see in the docket as well, it's not like a generalized concern that it's bad press for a company or that it's just sort of bad to have out there. There's real evidence that companies and consumers get re-victimized after a, a breach is made public. We've seen it in practice where you have an, a significant incident, you go to the public, you tell consumers, you notify them under state data breach notifications or what have you, and then there is a, a really bad element of, of criminal society that tries to come back with additional extortion demands. Hey, me too, I've got your data too, pay me $100,000. And there's a whole little cottage industry of 
spammers and scammers that go at consumers of those companies to say, hey, I've got your identity theft service here when it's a fraud. So it's more complicated, I think, than, than maybe folks realize. And I hope the SEC will read those comments and really think hard. And, and maybe, you know, I'm optimistic maybe that they'll be flexible and revisit the law enforcement cooperation delays and some of that stuff once they've got this full record in front of them. Yeah, well, I, well let's hope so. I agree. I'll just say, I mean, on the FTC, really, what I'll just mention is it's in, in ways it's our view is similar to uh, how we respond to the to the SEC is that the FTC is looking at issuing notification and reporting requirements. Our view is let the cyber incident reporting for critical infrastructure act take effect, let the rulemaking process unfold and use that as the basis for for government for reporting to governments, because there will be lessons learned and there will be procedures that can be put in place that don't um, that can hopefully help streamline this the process of reporting, because as it you know, if you try to think you have to you have to call seven different people when you have a problem and 60% of the information is the same. Well, let's come up with a common report and what information does everybody want? Put that on one report that goes to everybody and then specific information could then get to, you know, your financial regulator or your, 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 your energy sector regulator or whatever it is. Um, but you started mentioning states and fragmentation. And this is an area, this is something that, again, we're very concerned with because what we, we feel like we're moving. We, the, the cyber community, and is moving into a, a a situation where we're finally getting some consensus on how government and the private sector are going to work together. And then, if we start seeing some splintering down at the state level, where you may have competing state regulations, again, that's going to make things much much harder and much more complicated, and probably slow things down. Yeah. Well, I'm in violent agreement with that. So uh, thank, we've spent a lot of time, and obviously we could spend hours, you and I, um, comparing notes and, and dissecting some of these proposals, but uh, we'll reserve the right to invite you back on. I was curious if you could share maybe just some parting thoughts about what you'd like to see Congress and the executive branch prioritize for the rest of 2022. I mean, we're heading into an election, so I don't know what all is going to get done, but the, the feds have a lot on their plate with the initiatives that are underway. You've got security directives at TSA. You've got the implementation of the incident reporting law. You've got SEC, you've got an alphabet soup, but what would you like to see folks prioritize over at say the National Security Council and in the administration? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much. And I think, you know, so we're gonna be fo focusing a lot on the implementation of the, of the reporting bill because that's that we really need to get that right. And we understand that CISA is gonna be moving uh, a pace to try and get drafting on regulation. So we're gonna be very active there. Another thing that we'd like to see that it's, this is one of those things that's, you know, was passed and seems to just not be getting much traction is continuity of economy planning. Uh, there's a lot there that, that we need to think about. All this fits together with critical infrastructure and how will you deal, how will we deal with uh, something where we have to ensure that the economy continues in the face of a significant cyber threat. The other thing, um, again, I think for us is going to be both within the context of the incident reporting bill, but more broadly is regulatory harmonization. And we believe that the National Cyber Director, Chris Inglis, and his team have an important role to play in helping to shape 
how harmonization will work and look. And so we're going to be very active and supportive there. The other thing is there was a significant amount of money appropriated uh, in the infrastructure bill for, uh, I think, a billion dollars for state and local cyber grants. So we'd like to see some of that, those funds get distributed to try and help shore up cyber uh, work at the state and local levels. Um, there's something, there's one piece of legislation that's bubbling but not drafted, um, which would be a bill on codifying systemically important critical infrastructure. This is a priority for, for Jim Langevin, uh, for Congressman Langevin. And, um, you know, we'll see where that goes. Um, you know, there's, there's, we have you know, a lot of views on that, a lot of member views on that. Um, ideally, um, I think if we can work out a lot of that in the, what, in the already passed bill, um, I think that would be good. But look, those are, those are some of the things we're working on. There's, of course, IoT. Um, one of my little pet projects that I'm really interested in is post-quantum encryption, because I think that's something that is going to get to us a lot faster than people think. Also, the convergence of space and cybersecurity, and we really got to be thinking about that. So, I mean, there's there's no end. And of course, between now and the next time we get together, Megan, there's going to be three other Black Swan events, and uh, that that you know move us off into a different direction. So, it's like yeah. I said at the beginning, it's never boring. No, certainly never boring. And um, I appreciate the the role you and your team. Uh, play in synthesizing a lot of this information for folks because it is so much to track. I mean, we have some trackers that we keep and they're, they're 50 pages long of the various work streams, but uh, thanks so much for joining us and for sharing your perspectives. These issues are really important and I'm glad that we're all sort of discussing them and hopefully the rest of 2022 uh, will unfold at a, a pace we can handle <laughs> instead of everything happening at once. Um, but we shall see. But thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to join us. Well, it's my pleasure and we couldn't do it without good partners like you uh, and others. So thank you, Megan. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.